Well, we are returning to our study in the Gospel of Mark this morning. If you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 22. Um, Let me just give you a quick recap of where we've been. Uh, We actually um, have seen how Jesus has uh, begun his earthly ministry. He he went into uh, Galilee where John had been uh, baptizing people. Jesus himself was baptized and he um, went into the desert, was tested there by Satan, and then uh, has begun his ministry. So he's begun preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And this passage that we're in this morning is right in the center of a series of five confrontations between the religious leaders and Jesus, in which they are kind of setting him up or trying to set him up in order to find a reason to, uh, in fact, kill him. And by the time we get to chapter 3, verse 6, which we'll look at next week, Uh, through that passage, they in fact are beginning to look for opportunities, the text says, to destroy Jesus. Now, the last time uh, we were together, we looked at uh, this passage right before where Jesus has called Levi and he is feasting at Levi's house and the scribes and the Pharisees are testing him and, and confronting him, wanting to know why he would eat with such people, why he would eat with sinners and tax collectors. And now, in our passage for this morning, it may be that they're still at the feast. The Pharisees and the scribes may have come to Jesus um, while he's still feasting with Levi and asked him this question. Uh, It's certainly true that when it says in verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, it may have been just that that was kind of what they were doing in general. Um, Or it may be because Jesus had developed this reputation as being a a friend of sinners and himself being accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, that they were just in general asking this question. And this really is the central point that they're trying to make through this question we're going to look at in a minute. And it's this. It's like the Pharisees and the scribes were saying to Jesus, Jesus, listen, truly religious people fast. So why are you and your disciples feasting? So that's the question they ask, and uh, Jesus answers it here in this passage. So let's read it together. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, and then we'll jump into the sermon. Hear the word of the Lord. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, that is Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast? Well, the bridegroom is with them. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins." but new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn now to this portion of your word, we do pray that you will teach us by your spirit. We are so thankful that even though we are not gathered together in the same place, we are by your spirit gathered together right now before you. We take great comfort in that. We thank you for the word that you have reserved for us down to this very day that we have access to. And we ask now that you would teach us by your Spirit through it. And we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so three things I think we need to see from our text this morning. Uh, Three questions I think we need to answer. First, why should we fast? Why should we fast? Second, when should we fast? 
And then finally, third, what should fasting produce in us? So those are the three things we're going to look at. First, why we should fast. Second, when we should fast. And then third, what should we expect that fasting will produce in us? And so first, why we should fast. But before we jump into that, let's just answer the question, what is fasting? What's a definition of fasting? And there are any number of definitions out there. The one that we're going to run with this morning is simply this. Fasting is abstinence from any good thing for the enjoyment of the best thing, the presence of God in prayer. Fasting is abstinence from any good thing for the enjoyment of the best thing, greater and deeper enjoyment of the presence of God in prayer. It can be any good thing. It doesn't always, of course, need to be food. It can be any number of good things that we can take a break from for the sake of prayer and and turning to the Lord for a greater sense of His presence with us. Uh, It's only for a fixed period of time, and of course, if you're doing food, uh, dietary issues, you need to talk to a doctor. All those parameters need to be considered. Um, But in the end, the purpose of fasting is for a greater and deeper enjoyment of the presence of God in prayer. Prayer and fasting go together. I love this quote by Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray said this concerning prayer and fasting. Prayer is the one hand with which we grasp the invisible. Fasting is the other hand, the one which we let go, the one with which we let go of the visible. So with prayer, we grasp the invisible. With fasting, we let go of that which is visible. So prayer. Prayer, of course, is the great means by which we cast all our anxieties on the Lord and ask things of Him that accord with his will, and fasting is a great aid to our praying. Fasting helps expose in us the good things that we have made into ultimate things so that we might more fully turn to God in prayer for the one thing that we know will satisfy us forever, him. So again, the purpose of fasting and the definition of fasting is a greater and deeper enjoyment of the presence of God in prayer as we abstain from any good thing. So let's ask the question, why were the Pharisees and the disciples of John fasting? Because that's what it tells us right here in the text, verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6 that the Pharisees were fasting just to draw attention to themselves. They were making it all about them. Why were John's disciples fasting? It's a little bit harder to to tease out. You kind of have to step back and remember who John is. John Uh, is John the Baptist, and he, of course, is the forerunner of Jesus, and he would have taught his students, his disciples, to fast, and he would have sought to work in them a greater expectation for the coming of the Messiah. John was looking for the Messiah to come. He was confident that Jesus was the Messiah who had come, but through the course of Jesus' ministry, John was beginning to doubt. There's a place in Luke chapter 3 where John asks his disciples while John is in prison to go to Jesus and ask Jesus if he is in fact the one who is to come. And the reason why is because John's expectation and his disciples' expectation was that when the Messiah would come, two things would be happening. God's people would be getting blessed and those who were not God's people would be getting judged. And that wasn't happening. And so John presumably is still fasting, beginning to question, is this in fact the Messiah? John's disciples were in the habit of fasting, hoping that the Messiah would finally come. And so here's the Pharisees fasting. 
Here's John's disciples fasting, hoping that Jesus will come, the Messiah will come. And Jesus' answer to the question is basically, I'm here. There's no need to continue fasting right now. I am here. <clears throat> and so he gives three, three examples uh, with, the, with an obvious meaning to drive home the point that there are things that aren't in, appropriate to do in light of the current reality. So whatever the existing reality is, doing this thing doesn't make any sense. He gives three examples. The first is concerning a wedding feast. So take a look in verse 19. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, a a wedding feast in this day was a week-long event. It was a party. And the last thing that you would expect people who were at the wedding feast to do is not eat. It's like Thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving is not the time to fast. Thanksgiving is the time to eat, and it's the time to watch football. It is not the time to fast. It's not the time to not be eating. It doesn't make any sense. Those two don't go together. Same is true when it comes to a wedding feast in this day and age. Jesus is saying, if this is happening, if a wedding feast is happening, it doesn't make any sense for people to be fasting. And then he goes on with another example, the example of a, of a torn garment and a, an unshrunk piece of cloth to patch it. So let's take a look at verse 21. In verse 21, we read, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth from an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So common sense, just a simple example. You don't do these two things. If you have a situation where there's an old, shrunken garment, and there's a hole, you don't use an unshrunken patch to fix it. And then the third one is also a little bit harder for us to grasp, um, but let's read it. Verse 22 And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. They were skins. Like, they would skin a goat as fully as they possibly could, and they would, I'm assuming, clean it out. And then they would fill it up with new wine. Now, new wine is wine that has just begun to ferment. So as it continues to ferment, carbon dioxide is going to be released, and it's going to cause whatever vessel it's in to expand. And so goat skins were very strong. They were also very elastic, and so they could stretch as the wine that was in them fermented. Eventually, though, these wineskins would get old, and they would get brittle. And Jesus' point is it does not make any sense to put new wine, wine that's in the process of fermenting, into old wineskins that can no longer expand and will, in fact, burst. So just three simple examples to highlight Jesus' point. It doesn't make sense to be fasting well, I'm here, I'm the Messiah, it makes sense to be feasting. But as with so much of Jesus' teaching, there are the kind of the surface level example, his parables are all about common day things that people could get their heads around, as he gave an illustration of some point. But with the parables, there's always this deeper spiritual meaning that only those who have ears to hear are able to hear. And that's happening here as well. There's a deeper level of meaning going on in which Jesus is giving hints concerning who he is and what he has come to do that not everybody has picked up on in this, in this story, and, uh, and we need to make sure that we, we pick up on it. So, you know, the garment and the wineskins, there has been so much ink spilled about those two examples, and um, we're not going to get into them. 
Like literally the rest of the sermon would be what some people believe concerning what the wineskin represents and what the wine represents or what the cloth represents or what the, the patch represents. What everybody agrees on, however, is this, that the old way of thinking about fasting is no longer appropriate. Not only because of what Jesus, because of the fact that Jesus is with them, but because of who Jesus is. So the Pharisees added rules to the Old Testament about fasting and made fasting all about them. Uh, John's disciples fasted because they longed for the Old Testament Messiah. Jesus essentially says to the Pharisees, it's not about you, it's about me. To John's disciples, he says, I'm here. Now the example that, I, that, that Jesus leads with of the bridegroom at the wedding feast is the one that actually helps us the most. There's the clearest connection between what's going on in the Old Testament and what's going on in the New Testament and how that centers on Jesus in this example of the bridegroom and the bride. So the Old Testament depicts God as the groom to his people. In Isaiah chapter 62, verse 4, we read this, Never again will you be called the forsaken city or the desolate land. Your new name will be the city of God's delight and the bride of God. For the Lord delights in you and will claim you as his bride. That's Isaiah 62, verse 4. And then in Hosea 2, 19 through 20, we read this. God is saying to his people, I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine. Keep in mind, Hosea was all about how they were being a faithless bride to God. God is saying, I will be faithful to you, and you will finally know me as the Lord. Now, the New Testament recognizes that Jesus is the bridegroom to his bride. Ephesians 5 is all about pointing at how, the, you know, as a husband is to treat his wife, it's like the way in which Jesus, the groom, treats his bride, the church. And so right here, kind of at the center with Jesus on earth, he's saying, I'm that bride. I am God. I'm the bridegroom. I am God. And you are my bride. You are my people. Jesus is saying, I am the consolation of Israel. Jesus is saying, I am the comforter of my people. I am the Messiah, your Savior. I am Emmanuel, God with you. I am your husband, Jesus is saying. And you are my bride. Jesus is saying, I'm here. The one whose presence you have longed for is here. This isn't the time to fast. This is the time to feast. So from the way Jesus corrects their thinking and, and answers their question, we begin to see why we should fast. And we'll flesh that out a little bit more in this next point. But what we're seeing here is the reason why we should fast is for a greater and deeper enjoyment of the presence of God. They had the presence of God. They didn't need to be fasting. It was right for them to be feasting. When Jesus is not with us, the reason we fast is for a greater and deeper enjoyment of the presence of God. So that's why we should fast. Second, when should we fast? And we see that in verse 20. Take a look. The days will come, Jesus says, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now that would have been abrupt, you know, kind of the way he said that would have been 
it should have startled them a little bit. No one ever said that the bride and the bridegroom were taken away from the wedding feast. They, they left. The feast just kind of ended. And so Jesus uses this really strong word about the bridegroom being taken away from the feast. He's pointing to his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. After that is the time when his disciples will fast again. So this whole age that we're in right now between Jesus' first coming and his return, this is the age, this is the time in that time that Jesus is referring to in which his disciples fast. So that that raises a question, how is this time then any different than the disciples of John's time? How is their longing for the Messiah to come in which they had almost a sense of, of hopelessness and despair. They were mourning, the text tells us. How, how are we any different? Are we, is our fasting to be with the same level of hopelessness? And the answer is no, um, and I'm going to unpack the reason why here. It really centers on the fact that even though Jesus has been taken away from us, he is, by his Spirit, still with us. On the one hand, Jesus has been taken away from us. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 8 tells us that he would, it's his preference, he would, be, he would prefer to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. Jesus in John chapter 14 told his disciples, and by virtue of that told us, that he has gone to prepare a place for them and for us. So on the one hand, Jesus is not with us. But on the other hand, he is with us. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and his traveling companions were on their missionary journey, and there was a point at which it was the Spirit of Christ, it tells us in Acts 16, that was directing them. And of course, in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, I will be with you. I will be with you even to the end of the age. So here's where the bridegroom imagery, I think, helps us so much. On the one hand, the bridegroom has been taken away. But on the other hand, the bridegroom is still with us by his Spirit. So what does that mean for our fasting? I want you to turn, if you have your Bibles, to Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, this in 14 through 19 has become my favorite prayer in the whole Bible. And what I've never done until this week is connect what's happening with this prayer, what Paul is praying for this church in Ephesus and for all of us, with what he says about Christ as the groom and the church as the bride over in chapter 5. So let's just read this together. Uh, Ephesians three fourteen through 19. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, grant all of us as we pray this, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The love of Christ. 
Now in Ephesians chapter 5, it tells us that Christ is the great groom to his bride, the church. Christ is the one who lays down his life for his church, for his people. And so we get this picture of a, of a groom who is still with his bride, Jesus still with his church by his spirit, and yet Jesus at the same time away from us at the right hand of the Father. And the, Paul's prayer makes sense as you think about it in terms of a husband and wife relationship. Paul is praying that for those of us who are here, who long for Jesus to be with us, so in that sense, there's still this longing like John's disciples had. But now we have the bridegroom with us by his Spirit. And so Paul teaches us to pray that we will experience more of his love for us, that as we pray and as our fasting accompanies our praying, we might actually grow greater in our understanding, not just intellectual understanding, but in our actual experience of the love of Jesus Christ for us. We fast now because Christ is no longer with us. But we don't fast like John's disciples fasted because by His Spirit, He is with us, even though we await the opportunity to be with Him one day. We also fast now because a fast has been thrust upon us. You know, the church has historically chosen particular times to fast. You can read about this in Acts chapter 13 as an example when the early church um, declared a fast. And now is certainly a time for us to consider such a fast. Um, Again, fasting accompanied with prayer, a way in which we pour out our hearts before God and ask things of God according to His will. And so it's right to choose to fast now with a greater sense of fervency and expectation, expectancy, um, asking God that His kingdom would come. Um, But Martin Luther pointed out that some fasts are thrust upon us. And you see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. I want to read that for us real quick. In 2 Corinthians 6, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes this, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, And then the ESV translates this word hunger, but in the Greek, it's actually the word fasting. Paul is talking about, in a sense, a fast that has been thrust upon him and the disciples uh, and the other apostles, of abstinence forced upon them from a good thing, food. This pandemic is a type of fast that has been thrust upon us. We must abstain from a good thing being together, being able to be in each other's presence. So whether you choose to enter into a time of fasting on your own or whether you just accept the fact that a fast has been thrust upon us, we're not able to be together and enjoy each other's presence. Let's use this time to seek the greater thing, the enjoyment of the presence of God. So third, what will we find as we do? What should fasting produce in us? And I want to say two things. First of all, a contented discontentment, a contented discontentment, and a sorrowful yet always rejoicing hope. 
a contented discontentment, and a sorrowful yet always rejoicing hope. Now, what do I I mean by that? First, I think fasting should produce in us a contented discontentment. We search for contentment in the things of this world, and we'll never find it, can never find it. Jim Carrey, you know, comedian and actor, great quote from Jim Carrey. He says this, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Jim Carrey learned what, what so many of us have learned or perhaps need to be reminded of, that when we seek our contentment in the things of this world, we will always end up discontent. We will always be left unsatisfied. Fasting produces a contented discontentment. We learn as Christians that we can be content in all things, whether with little or with much, because our life doesn't depend on those things. And as we fast and, in a sense, for a season, abstain from those good things, that is a reminder that, is God, that God gives to us. We begin to experience what David said in Psalm, 16, in Psalm 16. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So as we, as we look to Christ, as we fast, as we seek a greater enjoyment of His presence with us, we can be content whether with much or or with little, with the things of this world. But at the same time, we're discontent because our fasting has sharpened our hunger for the one thing that we know alone will satisfy, the presence of God himself. And so first, fasting should produce in us a contented discontentment. Content because we're not making good things into ultimate things. But discontent because we don't yet have Jesus in full. So fasting should also produce in us a sorrowful, yet always rejoicing hope. We've been rejoicing this morning. It's been awkward. It's weird not being all together. I cannot tell you how much I would rather be looking at your faces all throughout the sanctuary right now. I can see even where some of you would be sitting than looking at this little box But that's where we are, and praise God we've got the opportunity through uh, technology to do this. What a a gift that is, and we do receive that gift with thanksgiving. So this, this is awkward, but it's still been an opportunity to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we are rejoicing, but we're also in the midst of a pandemic. People we love, some of you yourselves, are at grave risk. From this illness. There's panic all around us. Many of us are seeing retirement funds vanish. Some of us are losing jobs. Many of our neighbors are facing economic uncertainty. And so we are sorrowful. And we should be sorrowful. Things are not the way God intended them to be. But we're hopeful because things are not the way they will be. One day, this fast will end. Not just the fast that is this pandemic, but the fast that is, in a sense, life in this broken and fallen world that has not yet been made new. One day faith will turn to sight. One day all things will be made new. Our bodies in this, in this beautiful creation that God has made and yet is broken will be made new. One day there will be no more sorrow. One day there will be no more discontentment, only joy, because the bridegroom has returned for his bride, 
on that day and every day that follows thereafter, there will only be feasting. So let's wrap it up. Why do we fast? We fast for greater and deeper enjoyment of the presence of God in prayer. When should we fast? Now. Now. And throughout this age, while we look for the Lord's appearing, what should fasting produce in us? A contented discontentment and a sorrowful yet always rejoicing hope. Hope. Hope because Jesus one day will return for his bride. You know, Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding feast. He turned water into wine near the end of the wedding feast. He created the best wine. They were like, wow, why didn't we get this first? So he turns water into wine, into a lot of wine. Like estimates are around a thousand bottles of wine. I can imagine the guests thinking, this is enough wine for a feast that lasts forever. And there will be a feast that lasts forever. Revelation chapter 19 tells us about it. It describes bride, that is the church, being reunited with her groom, that is Jesus. It's a wedding feast. The groom has come for his bride. It will be a day of rejoicing. The best thing about that day is that we'll be with him. But the second best thing is that we'll be together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for the way in which you remind us from it that you, Lord Jesus, are our husband. You are the groom to your bride, which is your church. And so would you stir in us during this time in which We are absent from you. You are absent from us. You are at the right hand of the Father interceding for us even now. We take comfort in that. But Lord Jesus, would you stir in us a greater sense of longing for and by your Spirit an actual experience of your presence with your people as we turn to you in prayer. We thank you for your word that informs us, that that helps us understand what it means for us to be your people. And for you, O God, to be our God. And we ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.